Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, we have Dr. Frederick Johansson from Sophia Hemet University Musculoskeletal and Sports Injury Epidemiology Centre and the Tennis Research and Performance Group. Freddie, as you're here, has a background and special interest on the shoulder, so who better to interview him or chat to him than Informed Performance's own Mr. Ben Ashworth, aka Athletic Shoulder, if you follow him online. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Airbands, the world's first fully wireless, automated and affordable BFR training cuffs. Equipped with intelligent calibration tools and controlled via a mobile app, the cuffs accurately inflate to your personalized pressure zone, safely restricting blood flow and increasing the limb's muscle response to weight stimulus. If you're looking for a set of BFR cuffs, then check out Airbands. You'll enjoy no more cords, no more manual pump, and no more guesswork. Airbands are the safe and smarter option to amplify your training. Head over to our sponsor, vardperformance.com, for more information. Before the episode with Ben and Freddie begins, keep an eye out on our social media channels for updates and news. In January, we'll be launching our first digital magazine featuring some insightful articles from thought leaders and industry experts, much like the high caliber of guests that you're used to listening to on the show. Head over to Inform Performance on Instagram or at InformPod on Twitter to receive these updates over the next few weeks. We'll even be launching a product giveaway competition nearer the time that you won't want to miss, so definitely head over to our channels to catch that. But it's time for today's episode between Ben Ashworth and Dr. Frederick Johansson. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. Uh, Real pleasure today to have Dr. Frederick Johansson on the show, and uh, I came across Freddie when I went to a conference in Liverpool and I saw him present on the tennis shoulder, um, learned a lot of things from him and was really excited to try and get him on at some stage to pick his brains and just to follow up on a few things in another conversation. So delighted to have you on the show and welcome, Freddie. Thanks for coming on, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ben. Thank you for uh, inviting me here. It's a, it's a pleasure. So I'm really looking forward to it. Great stuff. I uh, just thought I'd start um, giving you an opportunity just to, just to tell the listeners a little bit about your background and you know where you've come from what's your journey to this point and and what are you up to at the moment well uh so my background would be uh, i i often say that in in from the beginning i'm a tennis coach so that that would be my home field so from tennis coaching since in the middle late 80s 89 88 i became interested in um, medicine and maybe not manual medicine, but like sports medicine. So that has always been a a curiosity of mine. And then in uh, 1990, I went to uh, Austria to a very good friend of mine, Håkan Dalbo. He's also a tennis coach. So I worked there for the summer and he was a trained napropath. And a napropath in Sweden is manual therapy. So he led me in in that way. So I did uh, four years of uh, manual therapy in uh, in school, and after that, uh, it kind of moved on and on, and more and more back into tennis, and eventually the tennis shoulder, tennis performance, and I did my PhD in uh, 2017 in Belgium with uh, Anne Cools as a supervisor, and Anne is of course a kind of a shoulder 
scapular guru in in uh, sort of a sense. So uh, finished uh, 17 and uh, the last three years keep going with research within the field of uh, tennis and mainly the adolescent young tennis players, so to speak. Well, that's great. And I saw that you're currently involved in, you know, some of the research with the, is it the Smash Group? Can you uh, explain a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, within our um, research group uh, here in Sweden, it's called Music and like a subgroup to music is the tennis research and performance group. And um, we did a study, a prospective study. It's called SMASH. And um, that's a, a prospective study that went on for uh, 52 weeks. And we were collecting data from young tennis players here in Sweden. And uh, in total, there was 301 tennis players in that study. And um, I think we had a rate of 75% uh, answering all the questions for 52 weeks. So we now we sit on a lot of great data that we're trying to publish or will publish uh, hopefully next year. Well, we can all look forward to that. That's, uh, that's great. I'm interested in t- to uh, digging in a little bit more into your experience. You know, it's great to have that kind of coaching background, then to go down the manual therapy route. Um, so we, we spoke off air before the, before the podcast and and an area that we were discussing was this idea of, you know, maximizing performance and also being able to minimize injury risk in, in particular, um, thinking about the adolescent overhead athlete. I mean, in your case, tennis, but we can probably apply this and the listeners can probably apply this to any overhead sport. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about that in terms of how you more generally think about that, that that maximizing performance and minimizing injury risk in the athletes that you work with? Yeah. So um, first of all, I think um, coming from from the medicine side or, or manual therapy side, I think many times uh, there's a lot of positive things coming from this side because you have maybe eyes in terms of physiology or eyes in terms of biomechanics that maybe not all the tennis coaches or all the sport-specific coaches uh, possess in that sense. But on the other hand, they possess a lot of experience and they can say that this uh, guy or this girl has problems uh, serving hard or maybe this guy or girl has problems throwing uh, with some different spin or whatever the case would be. So I think in, in the end, it's all about maximizing the, the performance in, in the individual player or individual athlete. But on the other hand, since they're young, and, and this goes, of course, for older athletes as well, but there's always a chance of getting, getting injured. So I, I often make the analogy to uh, if you're on the stock market, if, if you want to have great performance, you, you need to do some risk investments. If you just go really slow all the time, you will probably not end up with so much money in the end. So you need to take some risks. But on the other hand, you have to balance that and make sure you're, you're not getting bankrupt, so to speak. So so that that's kind of the analogy, uh, analogy that I use with the coaches when, when I speak to them. So so we, we try to maximize performance. So we, we want to be in that in that end. But then on the other hand, we also want to make sure that we're not taking too many risks down the road so so that that would be the basic philosophy so to speak 
Yeah, I like that analogy a lot. Um, and I suppose one of the risks of the developing athlete is that uh, they want to serve faster and harder. So, you know, how do you balance that? Firstly, let's talk about perhaps how to perform, you know, um, high velocity serving um, and see, you know, what, what are your thoughts about preparing young players to do that? Yeah. So I think the, the case is, is often that one of the things that coaches emphasize a lot is, is speed. And I think that would be the same in, in many different sports. They want a lot of speed, a lot of power. But then we have the, the young athlete. And the problem or the challenge, is, it's a better word, with, with young athletes that are talented, so to speak, they will be able to create this speed, create these forces but on the expense of probably not uh, being uh, so, so safe from a, from a prevention point of view. So, so they will, together with their coach, take a big risk. And in, in that case, my, my philosophy or my work in that trio would be to, to bring the risks down with prevention work, with making sure that the biomechanics are correct when they serve. Uh, for one example, make sure that they use the legs in a correct way, that they use the kinetic chain in a correct way. And, and that's why I like to be on court with the coaches. So I don't like the players to come to, to the clinic and the coaches is at the tennis club. The player is at the clinic and I speak to the player, but when he goes back, the coach wasn't present and the player hasn't really understood. So I want to be on court trying to work with the coach and the player at the same time. And in, in that sense, trying to maximize once again performance, but somehow keep a, a steady hand or make sure they're not overdoing it too soon. Yeah, I think just to pick up on something you said there, you, part, part of that was making sure the biomechanics are optimal. Can you go into a little bit more around that kind of efficiency of movement when we're dealing with these with, with these athletes? Yeah, so maybe one example can be that if you have a talent, and I come back to this word talented, but you have an athlete that is is um, have a capacity to to put a lot of speed on 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 the ball. In our case, in the serve, for one example, or in the forehand, but it might not be from a biomechanical point of view. Um, a very good technique so so it could be could be a technique that generates a lot of force but it it is on the expense of a lot of like tissue damage so to speak so we need to to make sure that the biomechanics are correct from the beginning and with correct biomechanics we need to make sure that the kinetic chain is involved from from the ground from the floor legs core and all the way through uh to to the arm and then to in our case the racket and sometimes with younger uh players they they don't listen because if you're gonna somehow intervene with the kinetic chain it might be for some time that they will not feel that they can hit the ball as hard because you, you're kind of changing a technique at a younger age to be able to improve or not to run into problems at, the, at an older age so you have to be really long term here 
and that's why it's so it's so important to to speak to the coach and the player and maybe sometimes also to the parents so so they understand what we're kind of trying to create for the future instead of looking you know here and now yeah that makes a lot of sense we we had uh Pordy Roach who works exclusively with the Arsenal Academy on the last show and uh he was talking about the, the the transition from that adolescent athlete into more the senior athlete and that was in football but of course it applies to to any sport really the the increasing demands on them as they hit harder uh you know and and have to tolerate more kind of more time on court in terms of training and and, and match load then you need to you need to have those basics in place don't you those fundamentals in place yeah they have to be in place and and the thing is that sometimes it can be that it it looks like it's working really well but that's because the opponent in our case is not hitting the ball so hard so they have actually time to do the incorrect biomechanics but when speed goes up when the ball is coming faster to them and the biomechanics are wrong they will first of all they will not be able to put the ball back into the court but they will also be putting a lot of load on the tissues in in the wrong in the wrong way so so it's it's so important that that we try to work with the mechanics at a young age but maybe not or maybe understand that this this is not now when the results are are coming that the results will come later on and so you, you need a lot of patience uh, with the players in in these ages and and the ages i'm talking about is more or less 12 to 19 so, somewhere in, in yeah yeah and they're vulnerable through that that period especially with you know tall tall young athletes growing and you know increasing body mass as well um yeah. so let's let's talk a little bit more um for myself i'm personally interested in how you go about this freddie with with regard to, you know, almost sports specificity. So, you know, you've got you've got these young athletes. What, what stance do you take? Are you someone who believes that you do everything that's tennis specific, or do you go towards perhaps a, a more kind of traditional approach where you, you might do some general work away from the court and then the tennis transfers the activity? Where do, where do you where do you go with that? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question, and and I would definitely go or or stand for this kind of old school uh, philosophy, and uh, and I would base that on probably mainly experience, not so much on research, um, because my experience with with working with these young tennis players, because what what they do all day long is to play tennis, so they perform a lot of. Uh, rotation they move in tennis specific ways uh, the coaches want them to to everything they do should be formed to to be a professional tennis player or at least a competitive tennis player so to speak and so if they do that for two hours or three hours or sometimes four hours with the coach on court and then when we move off court if we then are supposed to to go along in this sports specific area meaning that the the young player will perform sports specific stuff for five or six hours a day which i don't think is i don't think it's good for for um for the learning for the learning path i don't think it's good for the 
concentration for the mental health so to speak i think it's very important that these young players they do the sport specific and once they get off court of course you can do an exercise or two that is good for tennis or whatever sport you're in but in general i think it's good if we can make the players feel a little bit that they are actually performing another sport um so maybe we can we can transition into the fitness as they performing another sport that they're learning maybe learning to lift or learning to jump or learning to sprint but but that could be totally separate from what we're doing on the tennis court and then eventually over time this this uh, time of fitness this time of general fitness will kind of narrow down to more sport specific uh training but then the players are 18 19 20 21 and and there is no longer time to do all this general stuff but as long as possible i think it's i think it's uh, a lot of benefits uh doing that actually and uh, to play other sports yeah i think i think that's absolutely in line with what I, I believe as well, Freddie. Um, certainly that kind of non-specific background with the training age and you build that up over time so they've got a good a good training age behind them before they go into that sort of senior competitive yeah. phase yeah. Where, where there's less time. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's something that I've heard in, you know, I've heard in a lot of conversations that I've had with people who work with, with developing athletes. Um, in terms of the actual exercises then you talked about learning to lift you know so do you use lifting with the tennis players that you work with what what types what types of lifting yeah so um what what we try to do then because let's say we're we're on court and we're doing um, specific um, movements so tennis would be a rotational kind of rotational sport you go forehand backhands and serving so there's a lot of rotation taking place so once we get off court we try first of all to be more in the um, kind of sagittal plane so we're working flexion extension or or just trying to have a lot of control in in that sense so we're not working with like loaded medicine ball throws or extension like huge extensions in 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 the back etc so we're, we're trying to work with the classical like squats lunches um control movements when when we work with the players and um uh, I think we had huge benefits with this because we see it a little bit like when they're on court, we kind of, we're not tearing the tissue down, but we're we're loading the tissue in a sense that it needs some recovery. And once we get off court, the recovery will take place when we load the player, but from a, from a different perspective. So, so we see it in, in a sense that tissues will, will heal when when you you're doing these general exercises and so we we put a lot of effort working with strength exercises uh not, i mean not high loads from the beginning but eventually over time it will it will get to high loads but we try to bring them there in a in a safe manner so to speak and so uh, you know what would a what would a normal session uh, of course there's context to this but let's say in a in a 17 year old tennis player um what would an with a good training age behind them what would a normal what would a normal uh lifting session look like for them how would that how would that look yeah uh if the player would be 17 and and he would have been in 
maybe in our academy, so to speak, or we have been working with this uh, fellow for some time. Uh, because we always start with trying to find uh, kind of good positions. And with good positions, we, for one example, we say if you perform a lunge and you have uh, arms in an overhead position, and for an example, let's say you have a, a weight plate. So the weight plate is above your head on with, with extended elbows in st- straight arms, and you perform lunges. That would be that would be the first stage, so to speak, that we're trying to work with static control loaded movements in in regards to the shoulder. Uh, but of course, if he's seventeen. Those exercises would probably have been taking place at the age of 11, 12, 13. So let's say he's 17 and he, he's been doing that uh, for some time. Then we might use the exercise still in, in the program, but maybe for a kind of preparation or, or warm up for something else. So, so we would start with some good positioning of the, of the shoulder uh, above. Uh, in an overhead uh, position, and then we move from those static to more dynamic exercises like traditional presses. And of course, if uh, there are some players with limited mobility in the thoracic spine or in the shoulder for that case, we might work with uh, single hand presses instead of uh, barbell presses. So, So of course, there's always an individual assessment that you have to make with each player. But But in general, um that that's how we try to to work so so um static and then dynamic and and once again we go with the basic stuff so we use a lot of front squats uh, for one example to try to engage the core um so so we like to to load the players uh with front squats instead of back squats because in my experience as soon as you you kind of let the player to do back squats the technique is not all the time, but sometimes the technique is a little bit gone and the weight goes up. But if you go front squats, there's no chance that they can increase the weight too much because the load on the shoulders will be too heavy and they will have a hard time controlling the load. So it's kind of a self-guidance uh, kind of exercise if you go front squats instead of back squats. Yep. Yeah, yeah I understand that completely. And and in our case, you know, as a tennis player, I mean, we, we, we work a lot with, with lifting and Olympic lifts, etc. But in the end, we, we're trying to be tennis players. So so we cannot put 500 hours into learning how to do the, the lift perfectly. There's, there's absolutely no time for that. So we need to progress quite fast. So we need to learn the basic lifts because in the end, we need to, to play a lot of tennis. So... So a regular session might be in the end, you know, with a seven, 17 year old guy, like forty five minutes if we're if we are efficient. Um, but then, but then we try to put a lot of uh, uh, a, a lot of um, exercise into those forty five minutes, and th- and then we go for recovery. Yeah, I understand. One thing you one thing you picked up there, which I suppose is a question that a lot of people ask, is about this bilateral exercise versus a unilateral exercise specifically in in sports where you've got you know one arm or single arm dominance like throwing and like tennis um yeah it's interesting there that you sort of still will use the bilateral exercise some people some people steer away from it but you're happy 
with with those athletes in in your program using like bench press and and you know you didn't mention it there but do you do things like chins and 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 you know traditional exercises for pulling as well as pushing yeah 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 we do um actually with bench presses we we don't perform those uh so much but like one funny thing i um, work with some younger female players and um when they were like 14, they they saw some older guys do bench presses. And so they said, why, why don't we do that exercise? And I said, of course, we can do some bench pressing. It's, it's not dangerous. It might not be the, the best uh, tennis exercise, maybe. So they started to do a little bit of bench pressing. And all of a sudden, they think that's that's a lot of fun. And I will not, <laughs> I will not be the fitness guy that will tell girls that yeah, you're, you're not allowed to bench press. Of course, we don't we don't do it three times a week. But if if we have a session and they say in the end, can we do some bench presses? Of course, as long as we do it properly, as long as we have control, it's it's it will not hurt them. And and in the end, it 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 has to be their will and and their joy that brings them moves them forward, so to speak. So um, yeah, we do we do all kinds of uh, traditional exercises and down the road so let's once say this guy is 17 hopefully he or she will kind of make a lot of own choices and if chin-ups would be one of those i would for sure um, uh, do them definitely uh, I, w- I wouldn't overdo them because some, some players get you know kind of elbow problems or some get shoulder problems if they're kind of if they have a lot of laxity in the shoulder they can get some shoulder problems but in general, I think we should try to kind of keep the exercises, not take the exercises away. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of comes back to what you were saying a little bit earlier about making sure they can get into good positions. You know, you, you, meant, you mentioned people who had restricted thoracic mobility, um, you know, with that getting the arm overhead. Um, one of the one of the key things in in getting to the bottom position of a chin is that you can do that. Otherwise, athletes are going to cheat. So, yeah. I suppose as long as it's w- well coached and that they maintain good form throughout the exercise, and you don't, you know, go for maximum lifts, um, then then there's a huge benefit to to loading and producing more force in those more challenging positions for these athletes. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's uh, that's spot on, Ben. I think. Uh the coaching is is very important uh, especially in these young ages and so because sometimes tennis coaches and I, I i cannot say how it is in other sports but sometimes in tennis it's like okay we're done with tennis so now you can go and do some fitness and there's no one actually no one that goes with the players to the, to the fitness and of course then they do uh, a lot of stuff some good and, and some bad, and maybe some really not good. And uh, although they might not get injured in fitness, they will not progress forward. So, so this is, I think, one of the 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 keys to 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 get adolescent players, to get young players, to maximize their performance is to be really careful and and cautious and and thorough when when you're in fitness because it it will make a difference but if 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 you're not that if you just let it go it of course then it will not make a difference so that's that's kind of dealt with the 
the sort of training of of the elite tennis player, you know, to prepare them. And and basically, we we discussed a lot around the the preparation of these athletes for for the sport. Um, but then what happens is they go into a competitive phase, a competitive season, and you know they have to play a number of games within a very short period of time. Um, what um, what do you do to to look at that to you know minimize injury risk? How do you how do you monitor those players through through that kind of competitive phase? Yeah. So first of all, I think uh, if if we've been doing really well in preparation phase with with this strength and and of course, mobility work and conditioning work, uh, etc. And we re- now we're prepared to play. I think one thing that you have to look look out for a little bit is that when we mention kind of prevention or we try to to minimize injuries, and you know, external rotation has has become something that you see everyone is performing external rotation, but sometimes I think maybe they're overdoing it in overhead sports because they do rotation movements before and they do rotation movements afterwards and in between matches but i think that that's one of the one of the exercises that we need to maybe rethink a little bit it, it's okay in my opinion to do some preparation with maybe some faster uh, external rotation but not so many just to get the the neuromuscular tension or neuromuscular work going and then maybe on days off when you know okay now i have a game um, i played monday i'm not playing tuesday i play wednesday then maybe on tuesday i do some external rotation to make sure that the rotator cuff is is kind of doing some recovery work or together with some manual therapy for for one example so it's it's a little bit. I use here. I use the analogy, uh, kind of, you know, with the F F one cars that you, you kind of go on the track and you go really hard, but then you come back to the pit stop and you have to tighten some some of the screws. You have to polish the the car, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So so you make the car nice to go again. So I think that that, that will be the philosophy that you you go out, you compete, you compete really hard, and then you come back to the to the garage, so to speak, to the mechanics. And you have to make sure that the car is fine so you can go again. Yeah, that maintenance in between, you know, exposure, high-intensity sporting exposure certainly is a, a, is a real good theme, you know, like getting in a, a small dose or a micro dose of, of, of something either therapeutic or something that might be maintaining strength in cer- certain muscle groups, yeah. yeah. And there we um, use... Uh, Sorry, Ben, but but there we use uh, no, uh, repair. So for us, it would be when the player comes back from the game, we we first ask ourselves, is there anything to repair? And if there is, there's probably, unfortunately, there's an injury uh, that needs reparation. So then maybe game two will not happen. But most of the cases, it is not. So repair would be still the first phase. The next phase is restore and restore is what we actually just talked about with rotator cuff or if the player feels that, okay, I need to, my legs are not working. So we need to do some leg work or we need to do some speed work. So that would be restore. And then the next phase would be build. But of course, when we're in the competitive season, it's it's tougher to build. So build would have been more 
when we are in the preparation season or if we have let's say sometimes in tennis we have like 10 days or two weeks in between competitions so then we can have kind of a mini mini session or mini block with four or five sessions trying to build the player uh, again although it's it's not so easy on four or five sessions but you can you can do something in those sessions and uh, and that could also be in terms of when we're monitoring load that could be that player is competing and load actually goes up on the tissues so then we need to to bring the load down by replacing it with some good fitness and and fitness will kind of heal the tissues once again so so it's it's back to that philosophy i think yeah i really like that that stage progression that kind of checklist um process that's that's a really nice one i hadn't heard that before um before we go on to pick up a little bit there on the actual load monitoring itself um i'm just interested in do, do you use much objective markers around around the monitoring of players um you know do you look at that external rotation force production as an example do, is that something you use mm, we use it i don't think we we overdo it um i think we good or bad i'm not sure but very often i think we trust our kind of experience or gut feeling um but for me the first sign would be because I don't see the games all the time because I, I cannot travel around and see all the all the matches. But if the coach tells me, let's say he tells me from a shoulder perspective now that, okay, my player in the third set uh, could not uh, put so much speed long, no, no longer in the serve, for one example. And then I, ask, then I maybe ask the coach, okay, so in your opinion, what, what could be the problem? What, what do you see? Well, I'm not sure. He says he, he he uses his legs, he uses the core. It it everything looks fine, but the speed is kind of not there. So that could be a sign of okay, maybe the 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 cuff, the rotator cuff, is a bit fatigued. So if if I would get that signal, then I would maybe go in and say, okay, we'll do two or three assessments, and one could be isometric testing of the rotator cuff with a dynamometer uh, for for one example. And if we if if we then see okay you you are you're fatigued you're tired you cannot perform as as you did at baseline when we were in the preparation season from from that point on we we don't take the player out but maybe we try to enhance the work of the rotator cuff for a couple of weeks forward then to to try to once again minimize the risk that this fatigueness will move into an injury so to speak. Uh, so so then we're back to this with risks and and benefits uh with the players yeah i think you've hit that hit that on the head there i think the fact that you're you're getting the context from the coach around where this problem may be coming from and and, you know right right at the start you you talked about you know the kinetic chain and the use of the force from the ground upwards and if they're seemingly producing force from the legs and the trunk and it seems to be more of a local shoulder problem. Yeah. Then, yeah, it seems seems relevant to target the uh, the, the shoulder locally and trying to you know restore, as you say, the the function. What's um What's interesting? I, I spoke to uh, a, a colleague who who works at the LTA, Chris McLeod. He works there. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. He talked he talked to me about you know sometimes it's it's the opposite, and actually, what happens is 
in tournaments where you end up playing a lot of games, the legs are the things that go first, you know, specifically in kind yeah. of maybe developing athletes. And then what happens is they end up becoming very, you know, they're just having a swing at it was his comment to be fair. Right. Um, yeah. And that, and that essentially overloads the shoulder. So what, what would you do in that situation? So it's a sort of shoulder, shoulder overload from a lower body deficit. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so w- one of the tests that we should do is, is, uh, locally would be, for one example, the isometric, uh, uh, dynamometer test. But, but of course we, we co- if the, if the coach would say that, okay, it feels like my player, or if the player says himself or herself that I'm, I'm not so quick around the court, um, it doesn't feel like I can jump uh, in the serve uh, as well as I'm used to. So then maybe we, we would move in and do a counter-movement jump for, for one assessment. And let's say at baseline, we know that this player is good for like 40 centimeters. Uh, and now he or she is performing, I don't know, 10% less or 20% less or something. Then we would probably go kind of down the global path we're trying to to do some leg work uh, in the following couple of weeks uh, to to improve that. So so I think we try to, like you said here earlier, I think we try to follow the coach and the player's uh, feelings instead of just coming in and say, okay, now we're going to do measurements again because the player will feel, okay, we're doing so much stuff all the time. We have to eat right, sleep right, and now we're going to do 15 measurements after every game it's 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 not it's not possible to to do that i think not at, yeah. least, at least not with young players huh? so you, you need to to pick up some small things that you think okay this could be of importance because because you have another another angle with with younger athletes and and it could sound a little bit harsh but it is that they they need to adjust they need to kind of break down a little bit and then build up by themselves they need to to adapt to the sport because uh, we, we, i've learned from a spanish coach in in mallorca and he said like this tennis will never adapt to you you have to adapt to yeah. tennis <laughs> you know and that's that's a that's very brilliant. good that's a good good saying huh? i mean that goes for yeah. every sport they will not change soccer because one of your players are tired in in his legs huh? so so I think we we need kind of go with the sport, go with the with the young players by their side, and when there is a need for it, we we do some assessments to to take new decisions for the next couple of two, three, four weeks, and and then most of the times, if we are kind of hitting that that uh, sweet spot that comes from experience more than research. We we kind of end up with healthy players and not injured players. But if if we're only kind of letting them go all the time, they will play more and more, and the coach will definitely let them play more and more. And then I think we're ending up with more injured players in the end. So um, I think th- this this some some this is the philosophies in in a, in a nutshell so to speak that we kind of go alongside with the players and the coach we try not to interfere but when it's necessary we we do interfere yeah i think i think that's interesting that you know actually once you get to a, a competition and maybe you're starting to fatigue in shoulder or, and or legs 
uh, or lower body, actually, you know, there's not much you can do about it at that point, right? You can react or restore and, and yep. do those things, but yep. the, the work has to be done up front and you have to get that building phase in over a period of time so that they can tolerate the workloads. Yeah. They can tolerate the force production repeatedly. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, and, that's, I, and, you know, I just love the word nice. of, of Tim Gabbett when he speaks about resilience. I think resilience is kind of the word that we're looking for many times. Huh? And and to get resilient, I think you, you actually need to, maybe not to get injured because that's that's pretty tough, but you, you need to kind of, sort of break down a little bit huh? and, and, then, and then build up again. And and that's uh, that's how it goes, yeah. you know. That's uh, adaptation. <laughs> that, that's that's what it's all about, you know. It it is adaptation. It's like with, uh, for one example, with the shoulder, you know, this uh, this GERD discussion. Uh, so, do we perform a lot of internal rotation stretching? Uh, no, we don't, because in my opinion, it's when they start to throw at the at an early age, the uh, the torsion, the humeral torsion, will 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 kind of stop. Uh, in in the dominant shoulder but not in in the non-dominant shoulder and it will stop because we need external rotation so it's an adaptation to throwing which is a positive thing in the end because if you cannot externally rotate a lot you will not be able to throw and, and generate force locally so i think we we cannot interfere too much with adaptations but of course if adaptations gets kind of abnormal of course, we need to do internal stretching, internal rotation stretching in the shoulder at shoulder level because yep. otherwise they might get injured. But yeah, we cannot perform stretching internal rotation every day because it's not needed. They they, they need to adapt as well. So uh, I think I think this is a this is a big uh, this is a big topic. I think to to discuss. It's definitely one for discussion, and probably one that's uh, probably one that's too long for for one podcast. Yeah, yeah, Freddie, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in, yeah, I in, hear... in my PhD work, you know, we did some MRI studies, and we looked at the rotator cuff and and also the humeral torsion, and and basically this is what we what, what we saw a place where asymptomatic, no one had any problems, but there were a lot of adaptations going on. There's a lot of tendinosis. Uh, growth plates etc yeah. so so it's it is a big area i think um, that we need to discuss uh, in general in 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 our you know in our line of work yeah 100 percent. i think that sort of distinct distinction between what's pathological and non-pathological changes in internal yeah. rotation ranges yeah, yeah for sure uh, is it, it is absolutely key to that so don't hammer away at it if you're never going to get it back you know it's, no it's, no no it's, I, I mean you know the story first uh, there's no one talking about uh, gerd like no one is talking about that de- this deficit in internal rotation all of a sudden the, there's a cutoff at 25 degrees five years later the cutoff is 20 five or five years later the cutoff is 15 all of a sudden everything is normal so i mean the pendulum is is always coming and going and, and yeah. I mean, if we as physios or strength and conditioning coaches, if if we are to listen to all the information all the time, then we have to change our training regime every week, which which is not possible <laughs> because th- then we will have no players. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundred percent, definitely the the balance between you know that kind of evidence base and and that experience is is really key and i know you know from listening to you speak before that there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence behind what you do but i think 
it's refreshing to have that coaching eye, um, you know, and, and, and stripping it back so that you don't hammer people with a load of measurement. You do it when you believe there's a, there's a real focus point in a training program and you go in and you, you assess the risk, but then you move away from it because you're trying to balance that, that, that science versus compliance as well as you, as you, as you're working with these players. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. refreshing, refreshing yeah. to hear. We had, um, we, we had Tim Gabbert on, on the show. And also it's interesting because a lot of the stuff he's done and published, um, you know, if you, if you just read his work, you probably don't get some of the context, but listening to him speak about it, he says some of the best sports science he's ever done is, you know, not using any data at all. Yeah. And that's yeah, just, yeah. that's just working with the coaches. That's just integrating with the sport, understanding the sport, understanding the individual that's in front of them. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is very similar there. It's, it's, uh, it's spot on, spot on. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I can't finish this, this conversation, Freddie, which I, by the way, I'm really enjoying it because, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on here and to listen to you, thank but you, thank you. I, uh, I can't finish this conversation without asking you about the melting candle. Which yeah, is know. something that I, I I remember listening to you speak in the presentation. I just I wrote it down. I thought that is that's that's brilliant as a as an analogy or as a sort of representation. Um, so can you can you talk to me again and and the listeners about what the melting candle uh, symbolizes? All right. So so the, the the story behind the melting candle is is actually we were on a national. Uh, training camp with with our national players and this is i don't know probably 10 years ago six seven eight ten years ago and and we did all these kinds of exercises that we talked about in the beginning with lunches and and weight plates overhead we did squats with weight plates overhead we all these kinds of exercises and lifting and and some of the and, and these were the the guys actually and they were I mean, they were young, they were 12 or 13, and, and they were doing so bad, actually, that uh, <laughs> I, I tried to explain to the coaches that because we were talking about form and, and proper positions and integrating the kinetic chain in the serve, et cetera, et cetera. And, and when we were performing these exercises with the players, when you looked at them, the, uh, the wrist, that is kind of the most distal apart from the from the finger joints but but let's spare the finger joints so the wrists were kind of in extension the elbows were bent really bent uh, on both sides and shoulders were poorly positioned thoracic spine was not where you wanted to be uh, the pelvis was tilted the knees were in valgus and and the ankle <laughs> joints were just you know not not pointing in any direction so i i then I, I i told the coaches that you see you see your players they look like melting candles when they're doing these exercises <laughs> and and that has become kind of an analogy because when i do these presentations i have a picture on a couple of players that are really like melting candles there's no single joint that is having the proper form when they're doing the exercises so if you're a melting candle, you you have big, you have big stability problems in in the whole kinetic chain. And actually, when I left that training camp, because the players had one session to go, and I left early, so I I went up to to the 
to the cafe and I, I took out three candles and I, I lit them all <laughs> and then I and then I let them burn down. So when the session was over, the the, the candles were kind of half way burnt down and, and I told the coaches this this is your players you need to correct this otherwise we'll end up with bad performance and, and, and injuries for the future. And since then I, I've used that. So it's it's more or less gone viral now. <laughs> it's it's a funny yeah it's funny well it it'll go it'll go even further now yeah, i'm sure yeah. because it, it it really resonated with me when you when you explained it and when we, when i looked at the athletes you were you were showing on there on on the slides um that you delivered at that at the conference in liverpool yeah, yeah. freddie that's yeah. uh that's awesome well i think you know it's it's been a really nice um nice nice sort of journey through a few things around uh this this experience that you have and how you how you work with those tennis players um for the listeners, what we're going to do is almost like a European shoulder series. So Freddie um, and a couple of other guys from, from handball uh, in Europe are going to come on over the next few weeks. And we're going to then be taking some questions uh, from the listeners that we're going to then come back and pull that together with a, with a Q&A with all three of those guys back in the new year next year. So it's been a real pleasure, pleasure to talk to you, Freddie. Um, where, where can the listeners find you? Uh, if they want to get in touch yeah you know ben um first of all thank you for having me on the show i i really liked it and 45 minutes goes fast you know and hopefully i, <laughs> yeah. I, I gave some few tips but uh, since people now i think understand that i'm i'm old school so you probably find you will not find me anywhere uh, <laughs> but uh, because i don't have facebook i don't have um but I, I do have a Twitter account so if if anyone wants to reach me i think that would be their best chance it's uh uh, fr johansson with double s fr johansson double s um or um yeah i think that would be the, the best shot otherwise i'm i'm a, a hard man to find you're off the, you're <laughs> off the grid yeah, yeah you're off, off the grid, the grid. <laughs> well to be fair out, to be fair out of the three out of the three of you guys that i'm trying to get on this series you're the easiest one to find so we've got trouble with the other two yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're too busy you know they're too they're too young and busy <laughs> Freddie, once again, thanks very much. We'll um, we'll have the the contacts and some other things in the uh, about your background in in the show notes. But thanks so much for coming on the show today. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Great work. Big thanks to Freddie for coming on today's show, and uh, good job to Ben for hosting him today. As I said at the beginning of today's episode, we'll be launching a digital magazine in January to start 2021 strongly. So follow us on the social media links that you can find on the episode details. And also hit subscribe if you haven't done so already. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast. Tune in next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.